0: This is a Tech Media Group podcast. Welcome to another Who's Who at NASA podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Neil Cheatwood from the NASA Langley Research Center in Hampton, Virginia. He is principal investigator of the Inflatable Reentry Vehicle Experiment, or IRV3. And just this month, the IRV3 team developed and tested an inflatable heat shield. That could help protect spacecraft when entering a planet's atmosphere or returning home to Earth. Neil, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Neil, why is the inflatable reentry vehicle experiment a valuable one?
1: Well, when we um, explore other worlds, uh, whether it's uh, going to Mars or uh, or uh, bringing stuff back from. Um, space station into the earth's atmosphere and whenever we're going to another planet that has an atmosphere uh we try to make use of that atmosphere uh to help us either slow down to go into orbit or to slow down enough to actually land um uh, otherwise we need to carry propellant so uh for instance we when we landed on the moon back the apollo days that was all retro propulsion uh so we had to carry enough fuel to slow us down um but if we did the same thing at mars uh, it would take a lot more fuel, and we'd have to get all that fuel to Mars, because uh, Mars has uh, twice the gravity of the Moon, so it would be, be twice the effort, plus we have to deal with the atmosphere anyway. So, um, you know, the idea is we we typically use aeroshells, what, what we call aeroshells. They're the entry vehicle. Uh, it's the structure that surrounds the um, uh, the payload, uh, what we're taking uh, into orbit or to the surface, uh, and that that uh, structure serves as a, co- a cocoon to protect that payload, and we need to make it uh, an aerodynamic shape uh, so that it uh, performs properly in the atmosphere. Um, currently, when we do those kinds of missions, we're limited uh, in the size that we can make those aeroshells. We're, we're limited by the, um, the diameter of the launch vehicle shroud. Um, And why is that important? Well, the larger the diameter of one of these devices, the more drag we produce. And um, we talk in terms of ballistic coefficient, and that's the ratio of how much our entry vehicle weighs divided by how much drag force we have to slow it down. And so if you've only got a little bit of drag, you have a high ballistic coefficient, uh, and you don't slow down very quickly. Uh, if you've got a, for the same mass, uh, if you have a larger drag device, you slow down sooner and that lets you either land at a higher altitude or land more mass than you could have with a smaller drag device.
0: Can you take us through the day of the test?
1: Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a great day. Um, we... We started out very early. Uh, Some of the folks, uh, we we launched out of the Wallets Flight Facility on the Eastern Shore of Virginia, Um, and some of those folks, uh, the mission control folks, got there very early, like, you know, maybe midnight uh, or so. Uh, Some of our main engineers working um, the actual instrumentation, the folks monitoring our payload, got there about 1, 1 1.30 in the morning. Uh, we had, um, and then folks like me that are, you know, not allowed to touch the equipment or anything, mm-hmm. uh, we got to show up about 5, 5.30 in the morning. Um, we were actually launching out over the ocean, and um, because we were on a fairly large uh, rocket, by sounding rocket terms, uh, we were going to go pretty far out over the water, and we had to get permission from the uh, military to fly over some restricted areas. Um, and it, we had a fairly large potential footprint, you know, in the off-nominal situations of one of the boosters failing or whatever. And so you have to clear all those areas of, of boats. So you know, it's a it's a very um, a tedious process to make sure everything's in place. Uh, we had a couple of surveillance planes. We had a boat ready to try to do a recovery, uh, courtesy of the Navy. Um, so there's a lot of different pieces to put together. Um, and because we were trying to avoid boats and because we had to rely on you know getting permission from the military, what we actually found out was the military said, "Yeah, you can use our airspace, but you can only use it until eight am So you know that put us on a very early um, launch period. Mm-hmm. Um, we had We had a restriction on the other end though we had to have enough light uh, during the flight to actually illuminate the back surface of our vehicle because we had cameras on the back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we ended up with a very small launch window. We had to wait till about 7 o'clock, 7 a.m. to launch, but we had to be in the water by 8 o'clock, and there's about a 20-minute difference between when we launch, go outside the atmosphere, deploy, come back in, do our experiment, and then slowly uh, descend to the water. It's about 20 minutes. So we really had about a 40-minute launch window. Uh, that's what it ended up with. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of the window we had. We had to get there early enough to um, uh, get everything prepped and ready for that window. Um, it turned out we, we launched at 7.01. So, you know, the the, um, the Wallace folks did a great job communicating with all the recreational boaters and other potential obstacles out in the water, you know, got all those boats out of the way. Um, and uh, we had a good weather conditions. Uh, we had our navy boat out uh, on location, you know, outside the, the footprint area, ready to go in. Um, so it was all go, and um, we launched uh, the the vehicle. Actually, um, performed a little better than expected. Uh, the the rock, rocket we were on, mm-hmm. so we we actually went a little long, uh, and as a result. Then I mean we were still within our, our area that we um, had designed to, but um, because it went long, it meant that our surveillance plane was a little further away than than planned, and our recovery boat was a little further away than planned. And that but that's about the only thing that didn't go perfectly. Um, while we we're outside the atmosphere, we we had uh, allotted three and a half minutes to inflate, uh, and we actually achieved our desired inflation in, uh, pressure in three minutes. So we had you know, an extra 30, minutes, uh, 30 seconds um, to spare on that. And, and, of course, we had padding outside of that, but we actually filled faster than we uh, had targeted. Um, we had a, what we call a CG offset mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, that did, does it slides part of the payload radially with respect to the aeroshell. And what that does is um, that then takes our symmetric shape, our axisymmetric shape, Uh, and forces it to fly at an angle of attack, so we generate a lift vector. Um, That lift vector then would give us the potential for future missions to control it uh, and do exactly what we're doing, getting ready to do at Mars with the uh, Mars Science Laboratory Curiosity rover, where we'll use a lift vector there uh, to help guide us to a smaller footprint and also help keep us aloft a little longer. Um, In this particular flight, what we did, we had that lift vector pointed up and all we did was use our attitude control system just to keep us kind of pointed up and within a dead band of like plus or or minus five degrees uh, rotation. Um, That attitude control system worked great. Um, And in fact, we kept it within that plus or minus five degrees um, throughout the entire mission. Uh, The mission went from atmospheric interface Through hypersonic flight, Uh, we we you know we came in at about Mach 10, 10 times the speed of sound. Um, We traversed uh, the supersonic regime, transonic, and and got to subsonic. And the end of experiment was defined as when we had gone through the entire heat pulse and traversed all of those lower Mach numbers, and had actually uh, achieved a a, a subsonic like Mach 0.7. velocity. So that, that defined our end of experiment. But we also had these pre-programmed bonus maneuvers um, where we would move the CG offset back to zero and then move it back out radially and then move it back to zero to see what kind of response we got within the atmosphere. So that if we wanted to actively move a CG during flight to let us vary the, the magnitude of the lift, we would get some information on that. So we had enough fuel left in the ACS to do all those bonus maneuvers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, the, one of the coolest things we had, uh, wow factor, was we had four, four cameras on the back side that basically uh, filmed each of the four quadrants of the, the circle that formed our back shell uh, so that we could, we could look at how our uh, vehicle stayed with its shape. Did it remain circular and cross section? Uh, Did it tilt in one direction, you know, because we're flying at angle of attack, would would the vehicle, you know, push toward the, uh, uh, you know, away from that flow field, Uh, or would it distort from a circle to an ellipse? Uh, Would it, uh, under all these loads, would it shrink and cone angle from the nominal 60 degrees, maybe down to 58? Uh, So we had these cameras back there to do that, and... (laughs) that <laughs> they did awesome I mean you know when they came on you could see the earth it was beautiful color they, these were HD cameras much better picture than I thought we would have and um, we were able to observe the uh, the inflatable actually popped out immediately just from entrained gas even before we started inflating it It popped out to shape and you know we could see that right away um, and the cameras operated again all the way through the end of the experiment um,
0: In addition to, you had a variety of sensors, right?
1: We had the video. We had uh, we had a Glenmac IMU, so very good quality uh, inertial uh, maneuvering. You know, a computer that gave us our. uh, We we had uh, three axis accelerometers and and gyros, so we had a good uh, orientation history from that. Uh, We had a GPS on board. We had radar tracking. from both the Wallop site and also from Coquina, which is the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Uh, what that gave us, by the way, was downrange coverage, but also we were flying, I guess, a fairly new S-band antenna that every now and then would have these null spots uh, where it would just wouldn't, if, it, if that part of the antenna was facing the, the uh, ground assets, it wouldn't, uh, it, it had a, blank, a black spot, it really it just wasn't communicating. Um, but that would just be at one location. So we knew if we were coming at it from a different direction, like Coquina, then we would never have to worry about that. We would have one or the other would be picking up a good signal. Uh, as it turned out, we picked up a great signal the whole way through. Uh, we had pressure uh, measurements going on in each of our seven bladders. Our, you know, our construction was an inflatable structure that basically was like a stack of um, of differing size donuts, forming mm-hmm. kind of a Um, an inner tube pyramid, Um, and we have pressure measurements in each of those. Our uh, thermal protection system is one where we've actually uh, decoupled the functionality of the TPS into a range of of, uh, materials. So our outermost layer was a Nextel um, ceramic uh, cloth. Uh, two layers of that—that's the part that had to withstand the highest temperatures. Uh, then behind that, we had a couple of layers of insulation, which we called—it's known as power gel. It's actually a blanket form of aerogel. If you've ever heard of aerogel, um, and that those two layers served to knock down that temperature from the outer layers down to something we could handle uh, on our inflatable structure. Uh, so it was there to knock us, make sure we didn't go above 250 C. On the, the, the structural surface uh, behind those two layers of insulation, we actually had a gas barrier, because as I described it, you know, the two layers of fabric, you know, flow can go right through that. Two layers of uh, power gel—that's a porous material. Hot gases could flow right through that. So we had to deadhead the flow behind all that, so that it ended up just being a bunch of holes that didn't go all the way through, and so then the hot gases would would not make it through. Um, within that stack. Those two outer layers, the two power gel layers, uh, you know, we we had thermocouples at different layers so that we could then uh, compare uh, our temperature histories within that layup uh, with what we predicted pre-flight. And, you know, both in the design of the system and then actually pre-flight for what we thought would be our our nominal mission. Um, We also had heat flux sensors, heat flux gauges at the nose of the vehicle. Um, and we had a really a large cluster of uh, of these in-depth thermocouples there because we there we had a rigid uh, structure we knew the position of all these thermocouples and these heat flux gauges and the shape of this all very well since it was a rigid structure right there on the nose cap whereas out in the field every time we would pack and deploy uh, the inflatable some of these thermocouples could shift around so we didn't know exact locations for some of them
0: what would you say were your biggest technical challenges in making the heat shield work
1: well going into the project I thought we would have a problem with our thermo if we just needed to verify that our thermal protection system would work um, you know we began working on these inflatables about nine years ago um, and at that time we uh, started designing our first uh, Irvi flight test, uh, and we also did some ground-based testing uh, at some of our facilities. Those facilities included like the eight-foot high temperature tunnel here at Langley, where we could test multiple uh, samples at one time and very high heating conditions. Um, but what we found was, you know, that facility, just like all of our other ground-based facilities, we can't match all the conditions. Um, if we, ma- we need to match heat rate and pressure, surface pressure, and shear all at the same time. That shear is kind of a raking force that you get on the material. Um, what we found was whether we tested in the 8-foot high-temperature tunnel or at the Ames panel test facility or at the uh, wright Pat limel facility or even at um, the Boeing's LCAP facility in, in um, St. Louis, we could not match all those parameters at once. Uh, and so they ended up being, if we matched one or two parameters, then the third one would be a, an overtest. But from all that ground-based work, we still came up with a candidate TPS layup that we were comfortable with. And we launched our first IRB, Uh And that was about, I guess that was 2007.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that was not a particularly good day. <laughs> Um, the We had a problem with the launch vehicle, so we never actually came out of the shroud. Um, but at that time, you know, uh, I was working uh, in uh, the Fundamental aero hypersonics project uh, as the project scientist, and the principal investigator, my boss, was very interested in this technology and said, hey, you know, I still believe in this. How about we pay to do a build to print? So... In parallel with the Mishap Investigation Board, figuring out exactly what went wrong, uh, we started setting up a team to actually build it again and put it on another rocket and launch it. Um, And we were able to do that then uh, in 2009. Um, So that was when we, that that was Irby 2 and that was our first successful flight. So coming into Irby 3 we felt like with these ground-based tests that we had a... it had a good path for the TPS solution, but we still uh, had more testing since we couldn't really get to the right environment. We, I, I just felt like that was our weak area. Uh, in parallel, we had been uh, investing in what I would call our next generation uh, inflatable structure um, because that first one we did uh, had issues with leakage. It really uh, wasn't great at holding pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we we did some NASA research announcements, uh, two of them, uh, and from that came up with a, new, a couple of new concepts that we actually tried to fabricate. And, um, and from that out came what we thought was a superior inflatable structure. So I thought we really had that in hand. Um, so we awarded that you know, competitively for erby 3 And then <clears throat> what, what we found out was well, actually the TPS is working great, but we're having issues understanding what this inflatable structure is doing. Um, we had our first inflatable structure didn't take the proper shape, uh, or at least it couldn't hold the proper shape under um, relevant uh, pressure loading. Um, then our, we, with our second one, we uh, uh, we built a second engineering unit and felt like, hey, you know, we, we've got... Um, we got something now that's going to work. We've modified uh, the load paths and stuff like that. Um, but in getting there, we actually, it turns out, I think we cycled that article too many times because we actually brought that article back to Langley thinking everything was solved. And um, then one day we had it just under a nominal pressure after having it there for hours and hours. And all of a sudden we heard a pop. And then we heard another pop. And and actually the, the structure was given away. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had to um, hurriedly come up with a test plan to diagnose what went wrong, and um, we we think it's just duration fatigue. Uh, we had just cycled it too many times. Uh, but that investigation uh, was just a, the latest in the challenges we had had to that inflatable structure. Um, in the end, you know, we you know we uh, we lost a month or two on the flight schedule, but. Um, in an inflatable structure that performed great uh, and the TPS seemed to have performed perfectly as well.
0: Can you talk about the difference in erv uh, 3 and how it's made from a, a fabric as opposed to more traditional ways of uh, creating heat shields with I believe metal or composite materials?
1: So on a traditional approach we're limited by the size of the air, of the launch vehicle shroud, and we put in there a rigid structure, just like you would, uh, you know, you would build uh, your structure for a house out of two by fours and two by sixes. Um, we actually build our structures traditionally out of uh, either like an aluminum honeycomb, because that's you know a, a very efficient metallic structure mass wise, uh, or composites. So on the human side of things, like uh, Apollo or, or the new MPCV, uh, they're more inclined to do uh, traditional metals, uh, homogenous materials, because we have so much more experience with them and we know how they behave and all that. Uh, on the robotic side, like for MSL that we're launching, uh, that, that launched last year and preparing to land at Mars, we use uh, composite materials. Uh, they're lighter, they're stronger, uh, but they're not as well understood. We just, you know, we've not got that much experience with them. It's just like um, there was uh, the, I forget now, I think it was an Airbus accident coming out of New York. Uh, I think it was LaGuardia one time where the, the composite uh, tail fin snapped off. Uh-huh. Um, it just, uh, we didn't understand the fatigue issues with that and all that. So we're just, you know, composites are a little um, riskier. Uh, but either one, you're building a rigid shape. Uh, and then you lay up what is typically a rigid TPS on top of it Uh, that can be the form of um, uh, uh, phenolic impregnated uh, carbon ablator PICA that's the tiles that are on MSL and that's just rigid tiles Uh, it could be in the form of SLA 561V the V stands for Viking it's a super lightweight ablator that was developed for Viking and it's what we've used on every other successful Mars mission and that's kind of got a, uh, a cork material that's uh, filled in between uh, the honeycomb uh, substrate. So, um, so you have a rigid TPS material over a rigid structure. And what we've replaced that with is an inflatable, deployable structure, something that can be much larger than that launch vehicle shroud. Uh, and that provides us our stiffness. And then we drape over that a flexible thermal protection system that's not intended to carry any significant amount of of the aerodynamic load.
0: How will we see this technology uh, in practice in the future?
1: Well there's a number of potential applications. Uh, This is a new technology so of course nobody's signing up to use it today. Um, We have uh, some concepts where we might be able to take it to the next level as far as uh, scale. Uh, Because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, scale and environments, as I I mentioned earlier, we don't have um, facilities where we can test it and get, you know, the right, match the flight conditions we expect, the right heat rate plus the right uh, shear plus the right surface pressure, much less having it at the right scale. So, you know, with an inflatable structure, how does that behave under aero loads? Is there a limit to the size you can make it? How do you have to vary the internal pressure relative to the g-forces you're expecting to see? You know, we're learning all this stuff right now. Uh, So what we'd like to do is go beyond this flight test that we just did and ultimately do, you know, one or two more flight tests where we, maybe we go to a slightly larger still suborbital rocket, something that would let us go um, to four or five meters in diameter and maybe increase the heating another uh, 50% or something. Uh, and have a longer heat pulse so that we're actually challenging the thermal protection system more. Um, our ultimate goal or hope would be to um, uh, fly one of these, actually launched from the International Space Station. Um, as you know, we've uh, retired shuttle. Uh, we have limited down mass capability. Uh, that would be the recently demonstrated Dragon uh, is, is our... Uh, really our only way to bring stuff down from station right now, at least within the U.S. Um, We're uh, working, or have worked, with uh, the other commercial provider, the other COTS provider, not SpaceX, but Orbital. Uh, They have an upmass capability uh, in their Cygnus module that we could basically mate with. Uh, You could forego some of the upmass and have a stowed HIAD instead uh, and after they bring up the stuff to station, the astronauts um, uh, take out all the new stuff and they have to get rid of what they call garbage right now. Um, they can load it up with as much stuff they can put in. The more mass, the better for us because we're looking for ballast. Uh, and then we can come back in. And that would give us you know, an entry at like 7.5 kilometers a second. Uh, this would be you know, a vehicle 8 to 10 meters in diameter, a high at you know, 8 to 10 meters in diameter. Uh, It would give us heating rates on the order of 30 watts per centimeter squared, which is uh, two to three times what we saw on uh, IRV-3. Um, And this is really relevant because if we wanted to land, say, a metric ton on Mars like we're doing now with MSL, uh, we could basically do that with an 8 to 10 meter uh, hiad that would enter Mars at up to 7.5 meters per second, and we would probably see heating on the order of 30 watts. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it's a, that particular flight test would be a very good um, uh, demonstration test for something that you could almost immediately turn around and say we could use at Mars. Um, we also potentially could help recover launch vehicle assets. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with um, uh, I don't know, it was a year or so ago that uh, SpaceX put out a nice little animation about how they ultimately want to be able to reuse their whole launch vehicle. Because when it comes right down to it, you uh, you have a launch vehicle with maybe $50,000 worth of propellant in it. Uh, if you could recover all of it, then the only thing you'd have to do for the next launch is put $50,000 more worth of propellant in it. Um, so that's kind of an idealized goal. But the idea is, Anything that you can get back from a launch vehicle and use again reduces your cost for access to space. So we do think that these HIAD, uh, te- this HIAD this technology along with some other technologies might be applicable uh, to launch vehicle asset recovery, whether it's just a piece of, you know, one of the boosters or a service module or whatever. Um, so between launch vehicle asset Uh, returning stuff to Earth, um, landing at higher altitudes at Mars, eventually sending humans to Mars, um, using this potentially uh, for a Titan mission. Those are the kind of things that that we're uh, at least starting to look at.
0: To wrap this up, uh, when you look at all you get to do, what is your favorite part of the job? Well,
1: I really do like... um, technology development. I'm actually, at this point, serving uh, in the Game Changing Development Program, which is uh, under the Space Technology Program uh, under Headquarters Office of Chief Technologist. This all was formed a couple of years ago. Um, I'm one of the Principal Investigators. I'm the, the Entry, Descent, Landing Principal Investigator here in Game Changing. And I really like looking at um, making investments in technologies that will uh, let us do things um, more effectively. Uh, a lot of the stuff we're using on MSL that's getting ready to land at Mars actually was developed for Project Biking. So it's basically 60s and 70s technology. Um, and we're still using it today. Uh, what we're finding with like the HIAT development is that you know, inflatables were looked at back in the 60s. Uh, and even the 70s, they were looking at uh, supersonic decelerators, non-parachute decelerators for Viking. But once they got the Viking parachute to work, the discap band parachute to work, they basically stopped investing in those things. Um, but what's happened is, in the last 50 years, we've done great things as a society with uh, materials and structures. It's not just within NASA; just in general, the industry is really industry, academia, government. Uh, have all really made great strides in new, more capable materials, and so we're we're applying materials to things they were never planned for. The power gel we're using uh, in ERV 3, uh, and would use in future missions. That's furnace insulation. Uh, they, they use this, you know, for residential and commercial heating and air conditioning units. Um, when they made the stuff, they, I don't think they ever envisioned that, you know, we'd be flying them through a Mars atmosphere, but we might very well be doing that someday. Uh, so that, you know, developing the new technologies, figuring out a better way to do what we've been doing before, enabling things that we've not been able to ever do before, uh, that's what I find really exciting.
0: Well, Neil, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. This is great. Well, thank you.